McDermott's podcast series, After the Curve, The Changing Face of Healthcare. Today, we're excited to bring you perspectives from our partners on the outlook for the life sciences industry, which has demonstrated remarkable speed, innovation, and resilience in a time of crisis. I'm Leslie Tulio, Chief Marketing Officer for McDermott, and joining me today are partners Steve Bernstein and Chris Worling. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Chris, let's kick it off with you if we could. We've seen investment slow slightly in many areas as private equity firms determine what the future will look like. But life sciences has been largely immune. I'm curious, why is that? And where do we see investors focusing their equity today? Thanks, Leslie, for having us. It's certainly been an interesting time to see the impact of the COVID disruption on a variety of areas where investors typically make investments. And it's understandable. You know, the investor needs to be able to predict future cash flows in order to come up with a valuation for a potential investment. And in many areas that private equity and venture capital firms have traditionally invested, you know, determining those future cash flows is difficult right now. You know, you, you can't be confident on the future of consumer spending. So some consumer and retail investments are extremely difficult right now. Investments in manufacturing are challenging because of supply chain issues, potential disruption there with the global supply chain undergoing a variety of shocks from COVID. So the impact of that has been that many investors are turning to the industry that is in the spotlight right now, which is healthcare and life sciences. So the life science sector is booming right now because of investor interest in this space. And the types of investors that are interested span the gamut from early stage investors all the way to the public markets. And Chris, I would add in terms of categories, I totally agree with you. I mean, certainly biotech compounds and the chase for that is really critical. Diagnostics is a hot space, I think, not just for COVID testing, but other kinds of testing. And then I think the other thing that has happened in because of COVID is the ability to test new drugs and new devices through clinical trials has had some bumpiness. And so I think, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think what's happened is what I would call research support tools and digital strategies are becoming much hotter than they were. I think that was beginning to be a movement, but COVID helped accelerate that. When I say research support tools, I'm talking about tools that can mine data, mirror what a clinical trial might look like, but using databases that cut across different healthcare providers and pulling those together, in some cases using AI to catalyze and accelerate that. So in short, data procurement and use of tools to convert what used to be in-person clinical trials into more virtual or digital type trials. I think we're seeing a decent amount of investment going in that space. I agree, Steve. And and listen, we started 2020 when we were at JP Morgan in San Francisco at the beginning of 2020. The sector was experiencing a little bit of an investor drag from some of the statements regarding drug pricing that were coming out of the administration. And so public markets were down a little for the larger biotechs, and there was great concern 
that the administration was going to make a hard push to regulate drug pricing in some way. And those conversations have obviously stopped almost entirely. And instead, the nation is seeing the amazing benefits of the life sciences sector. And there's going to be positive support for making sure that there's public and private funding for new life science developments. You you mentioned drug pricing. We mentioned clinical trials. That certainly brings to mind for me vaccines, which I think are top of mind for everybody right now in the life sciences conversation. But what else do we see as the most promising areas of drug discovery or device development coming out of the pandemic in this sector right now? Yeah, certainly vaccines are hot and hopefully we'll get one soon. But I think there's been a historic movement, but I think again, and it has not slowed down, is looking for really almost any kind of cancer treatment or cancer diagnostic. I think those are key places. I think we've also seen anything in the, I would say, neurodegenerative spaces, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. And there's on the Alzheimer's front, there is obviously a push and a hope It's been difficult to sort of break through the barriers on that, but it has not stopped companies from continuing to try. And there are some that are getting closer or at least getting closer to a next stage. And we'll have to see how that plays out. The other thing I would also add is on drug discovery, the use of artificial intelligence and chasing compounds across different uh, swaths of the industry is really critical. And I think the maturation of AI and its usefulness, although I think it still has some more ways to go, is really helping drug and device companies power their research in a much more effective way. The other topic I would mention is digital therapeutics, which is basically the technology, use of technology, particularly in the behavioral health space, is the drug, so to speak. I've heard the term digital, digiceuticals, which is an odd term, uh, but it is life sciences, so we'll come up with a term for everything. But the digital therapeutic space is emerging where you have a combination of a technology that can influence brain and related activity. And I think there's a running debate about, is that a medical device or should it be its own category? And the FDA is bringing pretty cooperative in trying to help the industry figure out what that means. So I think time will tell, but I would start to migrate not just traditional drug discovery in this mix, but a mix of devices, digital therapeutics, traditional drugs, and kind of mashing them all together. And I think we are going to have a mashup in a good way so that these different tools can come together and create something anew. Yeah, I agree, Steve. In terms of areas of drug discovery coming out of the pandemic, Leslie, I think the most encouraging thing I'm seeing is just the availability of cash for any type of drug discovery is something for everyone to keep their eye on. Because the large biotechs are performing so well in the public markets, because some of the new public issuances by growing biotechs have been so well received, There is a lot of cash washing around in the biotech diagnostic system that will be used for new drug discovery. And a trend that we had seen for a number of years now was that the large biotechs are making investments in 
very early stage therapeutics. And those investments have taken a variety of forms. Option deals were back in a big way. Very early stage license and collaborations for drugs that are were even preclinical were happening. And I think this availability of cash is going to only put further tailwinds behind that type of investment so that we're going to see a lot of early stage development and a lot of cash go towards early stage programs that is going to yield benefits for the biotech and pharmaceutical industry for many years. So it seems like we can't probably have a conversation about, you know, whether it's telemedicine, life sciences, any health-related um, offering in the age of COVID without talking about speed or regulatory changes. So knowing that things are happening at a vigorous pace and regulations are shifting what seems like almost daily, what should life sciences companies be considering in this new normal? I'll jump in there, Leslie. I think I would say it's a few things. One is it's a business. So a lot of it's turning on relationships. And what I mean by that is as drug and device companies begin to think about their next step and getting products to market, they should have an early on process of figuring out who their relationships are with and building plans on where they're going to test their new drugs, new devices, and building ahead, building the place where the clinical trials are going to be built, building the relationships with either large medical groups, small medical groups, community hospitals, academic medical centers, even retail centers where there are consumers who are willing to be be clinical trial subjects. That's a place. You got to plan for that. I also think it's critical to figure out what your protocol looks like. How does it actually work? How is data procured? I think we've seen a lot of drug protocols or clinical trial protocols that are they're kind of fuzzy about how you actually get to the subjects. Figuring out where the subjects are going to come from. There's a lot of clinical trial matching tools using big data to identify hospitals and other places that have particular cohorts that meet the protocol or meet the standards. And so I think those are key things to build. The other thing I would also say is consider doing some parallel processes. And what I mean by that specifically is it used to be that clinical trial and drug approvals were a linear process. People would go after their FDA approval first, then they would figure out how the drug or device is going to be paid. We've had experience with running parallel processes where you're running the FDA approval piece in parallel with an approval for a new drug or device reimbursement code with CMS and also with private payers. Run those processes in parallel if you can do that. Our McDermott Plus consulting team is excellent at doing that, and they've had good experience teaming with our FDA teams, and it's kind of a unique thing. And the last point I'll say, and Chris mentioned this earlier, is watch your supply chain. And when I say that, building you know, active, active ingredients, if those are sourced from abroad, you're going to have to be careful and watch where that's coming from. Because if you end up with an approved drug, but you can't get the key ingredients because it's sourced from somewhere else, you're going to have an issue. So I would plan on your supply chain. Those are some just some key points in building out the next step. It's sort of the life sciences version of skate to where the puck is going, right? Exactly. Chris, do you have thoughts on that topic? Playing off of what Steve just indicated, the impact of what the administration is calling project warp speed is that the industry is going to see 
how it can develop vaccines in that case at dramatically quicker paces than the past. And that's going to have an overflow effect onto other drugs. So in drug development, generally diagnostic development as well. So, you know, what we're talking with our growth stage clients about is being prepared to move at this different speed, not only in the laboratory, but also thinking ahead about fundraising needs and charting out a potentially different pathway to get the cash that they'll need to undertake this development earlier stages than before. So that may manifest itself in, for example, connecting to what I mentioned earlier, an earlier stage license and collaboration deal with a large pharma or biotech. You know, whereas before we weren't really thinking about doing a global license and collaboration deal until you were working and making significant progress on a phase two clinical trial. Now you may be looking at that license and collaboration deal when you're partway through your phase one clinical trial. So if that's the avenue to get the cash that you need for that next stage of development, the teams need to be thinking about that earlier in the life cycle of the drug. I mean, this is going to be fantastic for patients because you know we've always talked for years about a 10-year development life cycle, and the industry is now looking at chopping many years off of that with some of the tools that are emerging, some of the regulatory pathways emerging, and the investors in this space and players that have provided the financing will need to shift expectations accordingly, and companies need to be ready for that. So there's nothing I like better than talking about things that are great for patients. So let's let's double down on this idea of collaboration. I think, Steve, there's lots of exciting things happening in the market right now. Can you talk a little bit about why these are meaningful in particular to the industry? Sure, happy to. Let me offer a few examples because I think we're seeing parties coming together in certainly pairing with each other and in some cases, three parties coming together to build something that's never been built before using each of their particular skill sets and technologies. And at McDermott, we've been seeing this for a long time and started using the term collaborative transformations several years ago. And so one example that we've seen and participated in is I'll call it a big data company teaming with a precision medicine laboratory coupled with involvement from health systems for purposes of cancer care. So taking big data, trying to figure out what therapies work on which patients for a particular type of cancer, and then mapping that through, doing the testing, and then building out tools that can help physicians figure out which therapies are going to work. That is a collaboration, but it would not have been able to be done without multiple parties bringing different skill sets and expertise to the the fore. We've also seen some interesting developments in the behavioral health space where virtual reality company pairs with a pharmaceutical company. Virtual reality company is, as Chris was suggesting, you know, very young, needs capital to keep its team rolling. And that can come from the pharmaceutical company who at the same time is looking for, I would call it new drug pipeline, in this case, a digital therapeutic 
whether we want to call that a drug, a device, or something else, we can worry about that later. But the point is, is that these are activities that are unique. They occur because no one party can, has all the pieces and the expertise. And making a partnership or a team effort, I think, will bring new tools, new opportunities, and new care modalities to patients more quickly. And I think for the reasons that Chris suggested earlier, there is capital inside pharma, biotech, and device in some respects to fuel these kinds of activities. What about white space, Steve? There are opportunities that haven't been explored yet. Where do we, Chris or Steve, whoever wants to jump in there, where do we see the industry going from here post-COVID? My sense of that is, is that the combination of digital technologies and the ability to track big data sets in order to focus both drug targets and disease states is really where this is going. And I'll be specific in this. I think we are moving, whether it happens fast or not, it's hard to predict. But there are some people right now who have their medical records in a chip embedded in their arm. That is a way to do contact tracing, is a way to do biosensoring, is a way to have their data with them at all times. But we need to build the infrastructure around that to make sure that those that information within somebody's arm, first of all, is done with their consent, and second, that it's updated. But I think when we have that, we're going to have a lot more information at our fingertips, and people will be able to get care more quickly because you won't have to reinvent the wheel. Well, I think that's exciting news for everybody in the industry, patients, providers, investors, hopefully equally. But before we wrap, I do want to ask everybody, and Chris, let's kick off with you, closing thoughts or observations that you want life sciences leaders or investors to be mindful of as we move, hopefully, out of the age of COVID and into whatever the new normal looks like. Leslie, I I think that executive teams and existing investors in life sciences need to think about the timing of financing differently. And the range of financing opportunities that are available in the current marketplace creates opportunity to get earlier funding for these collaborative transformations that we see happening in life sciences. So thinking about moving away from the traditional seed round, ABC round, followed by a license or an IPO may not be the way that funding is obtained for new products in the current environment. There are a raft of available new government funding options. There's a wave of new investors coming into life sciences and the new structures being used in the public markets, including pipe style transactions to raise financing, maybe an option for a life science company. So overall, executive teams, investors, and stakeholders in life sciences need to prepare for the new speed at which we're all moving and think about financing differently. Great. So thinking about the timing of funding differently, thinking about the speed differently. Steve, what about from your perspective? I would just be brief here. In terms of the collaborations, I would emphasize the need to make sure it's collaborative. And oftentimes in these negotiations, things can be tough, but just remember the main purpose is to bring together different skill sets, different tools to make something better. 
And I would urge people when they're doing the collaboration piece to start fast forwarding and looking towards what the integration looks like, both in terms of company cultures, processes, and what it's going to take to move things faster, because that's the real ultimate goal. And planning ahead can really speed things along. Excellent. Chris, Steve, thank you both so much for sharing your perspectives today. And thanks to our listeners also for joining. For more insight and analysis about the state of healthcare after the curve, you can check out McDermott's Healthcare and Life Sciences News blog at healthcarelifesciencesnews.com. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott, Will & Emery and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of the consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2020, McDermott, Will & Emery, all rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott, Will & Emery is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.